This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome to our New Year's edition of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark Judge. I'm speaking from remote. remote. I'm in Times Square. Look at that ball to drop. Ron, you're on remote, too. Where are you? About uh, shin deep in snow, <laughs> as always. Okay, Goose. Goose is actually in the studio. Well, it's it's our last show before 2017 becomes 2018, and yeah, we're doing it the hard way here. Uh, but before we get to next year, guys, let's stay with this year. Uh, how was your Christmas, Ron? Other than the snow, pretty good. New snow, new snow blower, new boots, old friends. Happy wife, happy life. Merry Christmas. Nice. Merry Christmas, that. Goose. How about yours? Quiet and relaxing. Went and saw a JP or a J. Paul Getty movie, and uh, I'm coming to realize movie theaters are the place to be on Christmas. Those places are packed. <laughs> well, Who knew? Your time, Times Square right here. This is the place to be this week. Yeah, this place is going to be packed. And as Ron knows, we had snow here in the Northeast for Christmas morning goose. So we had a white Christmas, uh, just a guess, but it must have been a bleak or maybe black Christmas in Dallas after what happened to your Cowboys. Well, that's the day Dallas officially became a hockey town. The NHL stars are the only one of the four, four major sports in Dallas with a shot of upholding the honor of the city. Cowboys stink, Rangers stink, Mavericks stink, so we're all in now on the stars. Hey, Gooseman, I thought Zeke was going to rescue the season. Well, maybe if the Cowboys chose to use him. I mean, he's shredding Seattle in the first half, 73 yards, 15 carries. Cowboys get the ball, first and goal at Seattle three in the fourth quarter, and they never hand it to him. So, yes, bad coaching can overcome great talent. Well, we're not going to be talking about Zeke, Dak, or the Cowboys today, but we are going to be talking about safeties with Hall of Fame semifinalists Steve Atwater and Leroy Butler, and we're going to hear a little more about those L.A. Rams with Jay Paris, author of Game of My Life Rams. We tried to get you in last week when we were talking Rams, but he got bumped by Mike Martz. We're going to get bumped, too, in just a second, for an ad. But when we return, we're not going to return with Mike Martz, but we're going to return with some of those Christmas gifts we either don't want or didn't ask for. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, before we get to those Christmas returns, uh, I want to mention the passing of a great wide receiver who should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but is not. And that's former Oilers star Charlie Hennigan, who passed away last week at the age of 82. And Goose, I know you wrote about him a couple of years ago, pushing him for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um... What is it that you liked about Charlie Hennigan, and what is it you remember most about Charlie Hennigan? What I liked about Hennigan is he accomplished feats other receivers only dream of. I mean, he set records. It took Hall of Famers decades to break. His record, 101 receptions in 1964, stood for 20 years until Art Monk broke it. His record, 10 100-yard games, receiving games in a single, single season, stood for 34 years until Michael Irvin broke it. 
in his record of 1,700 receiving yards, also still for 34 years until Jerry Rice broke it. In his three 200-yard games in a single season in 1961, that record is still standing 56 years later. Wow. Well, Ronnie, and I'll mention that Ron is on remote. He's knee-deep in snow in New England, and I'm on remote as well. I'm going to be knee-deep in confetti come next week. But, Ron, if you followed the Boston Patriots, and I know you did because you suffered through that 63 AFL championship game, you must remember Charlie. You must remember Charlie, right? Do uh, do I remember him? The first time I ever saw him against the Boston Patriots, I was 11. He nearly caught my age. He had seven catches for 113 yards. You know, they beat my age. He had 13 for 272, an average nearly 21 yards a catch. In the case we think it's an accident, the 63, I was older and wiser at 13 and knew what was coming. Patriots didn't. His first game that season, he had eight catches for 202 yards and two touchdowns. That's over 25 yards catch. By then, my friends, I had had my belly full of jelly. <laughs> well, Goose, as you mentioned, his numbers speak for themselves. So the obvious question. Why isn't he in the Hall of Fame already, and was he one of those early victims of alleged AFL bias? Yeah, Charlie Hannigan, Otis Taylor, Lionel Taylor, there are some great receivers from the AFL era that have never even been discussed. The Hall welcomed Lance Allworth and Don Maynard in and then closed the door to the rest. You know, what I find amusing, their their statistics and their records uh, were discounted because back then the AFL was, quote, a passing league. But in today's NFL, another passing league, they want us to embrace all these inflated numbers. So what's wrong mm. with this picture? Yeah, good, good question. What is? Everything. Hey, listen, Goose and, and Ron, the two of you are on the senior committee. But sometimes when a player passes away, and I'm not naming names, but sometimes when he dies, that pushes him toward the front of the line, senior candidates. What are the right. chances that happens or could happen with Charlie Hennigan? And, and because the two of you are on that committee, I'll start with you, Ron. What are the chances... It's you that you would act unilaterally to do that. In other words, push him to the front. Right. Um, you know, I kind of doubt it. Uh, like Goose points out, the early NFL players uh, were tainted by at least the perception that the secondaries were weaker than the NFLs, and maybe they were. Uh, we'll never know. Um, but I think that works certainly against someone like Charlie Hennigan. Uh, not to mention the fact that there are probably, frankly, candidates uh, deep in that pool for whom you could make a stronger case. And I think uh, at this point, uh, rightly or wrongly, his time is probably passed. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there, are, there are no unilateral, unilateral acts on this committee. It's a committee of five that meets, a committee of two, can't get anything done. And it's not like Charlie Hennigan is the only injustice in the senior pool. There are about 50 players I'd like to bring out tomorrow, and he'd certainly be one of them. Yeah, hey, Ron, I, and I, I agree with you, Goose. Ron, you know, talk about the secondaries of the AFL. If they were so weak, what the heck happened in Super Bowl three? <laughs> yeah, well, the Colts been asking themselves that for about 50 years. And it's, yeah. it's, uh, it, that's true. Now, they would say, look, we had open guys, and we didn't find them. No more awards yeah. from the great dream. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Orr is still open in the end zone, as I said. I was a diehard Colts fan. I have no idea what happened. Well, anyway, here's hoping that Charlie Hannigan one day makes it to Kenton. Uh, this is, of course, the week after Christmas, which means you're either getting ready for a New Year's Eve party as I am here in New York City, or standing in line to return a Christmas present. So, Goose, let's start with you. If you're standing in line at 345 Park Avenue, a couple blocks away here, home of the NFL, what or who are you returning? 
I am returning the Chargers to San Diego. There's a reason the Chargers, Rams, and Raiders all fled Los Angeles in the past. This is a fickle fan base that will support you if you're competing for championships, but I certainly don't see this fan base embracing two franchises in the same town. That's a tough sell. Ask the Clippers. So I'm sending the Chargers back where they belong, San Diego. Ooh, people like it down there. I like it, Goose. Good move. Ronnie, what are you sending back? What are you taking back? I'm returning Alberto Riveron. Uh... <laughs> Rule book, because clearly he hasn't taken the time to read it, so we might as well give it to someone who wins, because uh, apparently his copy doesn't have the words clear and obvious evidence, or he doesn't know what they mean. So that being the case, I'll return the book to someone who's going to use it, and I'll leave some boxes in his office, which he can start packing as soon as possible. Hey, Ron, question for you. Are you going to return the copy of the rule book that Mike Carrera and Dean Blandino have? Apparently that was a different rule book than the one that Alberto's got. Exactly. That's the one that that was I guess Alberto's got the Reader's Digest version. They took some stuff out. <laughs> okay, well you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna return that MVP award that our Ron Borges had ticketed before the season for the Raiders Derek Carr. Yeah, I remember it, Ron. I remember it. I don't know what the problem was in Oakland. I don't know what it was. Too many injuries. Too many drop passes. Maybe it was a back injury to Derek Carr. I don't know. Oh, no, Ronnie. But it was said there was no commitment to excellence, no greatness of the Raiders with a quarterback's play this year. And the reason, the reason I know is because we drafted him as our fantasy football quarterback. That's the bad news. But the good, who's man, the good? We picked up Jimmy Garoppolo as a free agent along the way, which I nice. guess, this man makes me executive of the year. Hey, Goose. <laughs> You got another gift you want to return there? Yes, sir. I'm sending Dak Prescott's 2016 Rookie of the Year trophy back. I gave my Rookie of the Year vote to his teammate, Ezekiel Elliott. He's the reason the Cowboys were able to play with a rookie quarterback like Prescott. Defenses had to stop Elliott, so Prescott flourished as a member of the supporting cast. But when asked to carry a larger portion of load this season, in large part because of that six-game suspension for Elliott, Prescott has not been up to the task. His interception count has quadrupled, and the Dallas win count fell off by five, so I'm sending that trophy back. So, Goose, you're sending that thing back. Uh, what's Jerry Jones going to say? I mean, you and Jerry tied at the hip. You're sending that trophy back. What's he going to say to you? He's going to say, I like my head coach. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think Mike Lombardi on Twitter calls him the clapper. I didn't get it for a while, and then I saw, I saw him on that. TV and went, oh, now I get it. Okay, Ronnie, you got a trophy or a present or something to take back what is it i mean in new england do you return anything yes we return stefan gilmore's uh, gilmore's contract because <laughs> that guy can't cover <laughs> leftovers with you know with the ran rap it's unbelievable that he's taking more money than tom brady and he's playing like the freckle-headed kid in the brady bunch <laughs> it's unbelievable to watch this guy and realize he's making 13 million dollars you can't cover Kelvin Benjamin, who's going to have surgery in 10 days. I mean, it's unbelievable. $13 million is a lot of money. Not to you, Clark, but to the rest of us. Yeah, not to me, but it doesn't make any difference whether you cover Kelvin Benjamin or not, Ron, because he can't make the catch in the back of the end zone. You know that. I know that. And Alberta Riveron knows that. <laughs> yes, he does. Feet in, feet out, ball in, ball out. Sorry, he can't help you. No doubt. Hey, Ron, any, <laughs> thought, any thought of returning your snowblower? <laughs> I love my snowblower. It's got a brand new carburetor. I love. It. <laughs> hey, by the way, that would be Stefan Gilmore 
friend of the show. <laughs> they, they, yeah, they, well, that is true. By the way, just a, well, just a shameless plug. When you get to yeah. show down there, Goose Man, what you want is the Arians 24 Cadillac of Snowblokes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the Bruce Arians 24. I'll tell you what I want to return, guys. I want to return that preseason pick that I had, and maybe Goose, I don't know, maybe you had, of the New York Giants for the NFC East. Man, I thought they were going to win it. I thought Eli was going to be good. I thought Ben McAdoo for a change would be, yeah, Ben McAdoo instead of Ben McAdoo. I, I knew there was going to be a team that was drafting high in New York for the draft next year. It was going to have the first or second pick. I didn't realize it would be the Giants, not the Jets. Ah, they stink. Man, that's a bad, bad team. You talk about sending the uh, Chargers back to San Diego, Goose. Giants, man, I'd like to send them back to the oblivion, except that's where they are. Well, we're going to return this programming to a commercial. That's what we're going to return. We're going to return from that programming. We'll dive into history and one last look at this year's Hall of Fame candidates, including a linebacker who should be at the top of the class. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We have a pretty significant anniversary coming up, and maybe it's more significant in places like Vegas, I don't know, but it's the 50th anniversary of the Ice Bowl, the December 31st, 1967 game between the Green Bay Packers and the Dallas Cowboys at, of course, Lambeau Field, where it was. 13 below zero at kickoff, the coldest game in NFL history. Before we get there, guys, do you remember where you were that day, Gooseman? Yes, sir. I was shivering at home in Detroit watching the game on a black and white television. No replays, no controversies over catch, no catch, no concussions, just football in its purest and best form. How about you, Ron? Uh, I was in the living room of my parents' house over the top of an upholstery shop where I thought it was plenty cold until we turned on the old black-and-white Sylvania, and I took one look at Green Bay, and suddenly it was 65 and sunny in New England. <laughs> you took one look at that field, and you wondered, what the hell are those people doing out there? Exactly. <laughs> I wondered that a few minutes ago when I saw you come in from the cold. What the hell were you doing out there with a the shovel? But now you're inside. <laughs> Hey, listen, I was in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and I was watching it like you on on a black-and-white TV at Onslow Beach, and I wasn't real happy because I wanted the Cowboys to win. Because, well, because, you know what? I was a Baltimore Colts fan. If you love the Colts, you hated the Packers. Anyway, I thought it's appropriate we mention this game because one of the two senior candidates for the class of 2018, as you guys know because you're on the senior committee, that's guard Jerry Kramer whom Bart Starr dove over when he scored the winning touchdown, Gooseman, on a one-yard sneak as the game ended. Yeah, that became Kramer's historical calling card, but, but there was so much more to his career than that one play. You know, the, the Packer power sweep was a signature play of the Lombardi era, and it was a pulling of guards. Jerry Kramer and Fuzzy Thurston made it go. And his blocking abilities earned him a spot on the NFL's 50th anniversary team and the 60s NFL All-Decade team. In fact, he was voted the best guard in the NFL's first 50 years. He also handled Green Bay's place-kicking choice for a few seasons in the early 60s and scored 10 points in a 16-7 NFL title game win over the Giants on three field goals and an extra point. Yeah, like Goose said, uh, he's one of the few linemen who has a signature block. I mean, there's guys in the Hall of Fame that weren't linemen who don't have a signature play, but he does. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he also, as Goose said, led the, he led the Packers sweep so well, he should be in the Broommakers Hall of Fame. 
Well, why don't you put him up for a nomination there? I think I will. I think I will. Hey, <laughs> I've heard a story. It's easier time getting in, Goose, than, uh, yeah. apparently than in the regular Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's probably true. Um, I've heard a story I'd like you guys to confirm for me because I, I just heard it so often that I'll go straight to the source here and hear what you guys have to say about it. But that's that there was some opposition to Bob Hayes getting into the hall because he put his bare hands in his pants to try to keep warm. Ron, is that true? Yeah, that is true. Uh, 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 as fast as Bob Hayes was, he could have been standing on his hands. It wouldn't have made any difference, uh, to tell you the truth. But there was a former voter from Green Bay who used to bring it up every time Bob Hayes came out his hands in his pants. Uh, so I finally asked the great Dave Robinson, the Packer linebacker who was in the Hall of Fame and lives in Canton. Uh, I asked him about it finally, and he said, of course, because he played in the game too, and he said, let me tell you something. We all had our hands down our pants. The only difference was... Bob was standing out where everybody could see him. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't have their hands in the pants? It was 20 below zero. Yeah, the catch was if his hands were in his pants, it was a run. If his hands weren't in his pants, it was going to be a pass, and they thought he was uh-huh. tipping off the plays. You know, but the guy who lined up across from Bob Hayes that day was Hall of Fame cornerback Herb Adderley, and he mm-hmm. was the alleged beneficiary of those cold hands by Bob Hayes. But when I made the pitch for Bob Hayes in the room in, in, uh, in 2008 or whatever, I read a 2007 email from Adderley to the Dallas Morning News. He said, quote, when do you think someone is going to remind the Hall of Fame Seniors Committee that Bullet Bob Hayes revolutionized the wide receiver position? Hmm. Jerry Rice yeah. may have been the greatest statistically, but he didn't have any more of an impact on the game than Bob Hayes. Hey, Ron, what do you think the league would do today if Green Bay hosted a conference championship game in those conditions? Well, they'd play the game. I mean, they, they, they would have to play the game. Oh, they, uh, uh... Because uh, they might lose fifty cents if they didn't, you know. So, I mean, the, uh, you know, I mean, they'd have more high tech heaters and uh, you know all those sorts of things. Uh, but in the end, when it's that cold, I don't care how high tech your heaters are, uh, your hands are down your pants pretty quick. Clark, they would order the windows open in the press box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they did at the combine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, speaking of history, we have the class of two thousand eighteen finalists. They're going to be released next week. Um, I don't know. Is it Tuesday, Wednesday, something like that? Uh, yeah, Tuesday, I think. Yeah, okay. And, and that's uh, that's going to be pretty interesting to see who makes the cut to 15. But this is our last chance to review the 27 semifinals before they go to 15. So, Goose, I, I want to start with you here. We, we know guys like Ray Lewis and Brian Dawkins and probably Ty Law. They're going to make the cut. We know that. But But who is your surprise candidate or candidate? to make it to the final 15. Well, again, I think Everson Walls has a chance. This is his first and last chance as a modern-era candidate. And I think he has some momentum, and he deserves to be in that room. He belongs in that room. Let's discuss his career, then let the process play itself out. Well, Ron, as Goose mentioned, I mean, Everson Walls is the only guy who's in his last tour here. We have three guys, Everson Walls being one of them, Joe Jacoby and Roger Craig all of whom are friends of the show, but they're also all in their last years of eligibility as modern-era candidates, meaning this is their 20th and last year of eligibility. So, simple question to you, Ron. Do all three of these guys make the cut in their last try, and and do you believe all three should make the cut? Uh, Personally, I I don't really think so. Uh, I certainly think Everson Walls deserves to be in the room, as Goose points out, and how he's never been in there before. Uh, we will never know. 
you know, Jacoby and Craig have had chances at least to be in there and have their cases debated. Uh, I don't. Um, uh, I think to a degree that last year of eligibility should carry a little bit of weight, but my fear mm-hmm. is that it becomes a pity party, and every time some guy's you know in his last year, you know he, he's in the room, and I and I think you have to look at the list of people and say is he one of the fifteen uh, best or close enough at least that you can hold somebody off for for a year or two, and in the case of Jacoby and Craig, I think they've they have been in there, and they have had some opportunities. Everson Walls never has, and. Uh, I certainly hope he gets in it. The others, I, I think it's going to be hard for them. You know, if this is a fair process, Craig, Jacoby, and Walls would all have been in the room years ago when their candidacies and careers were still fresh in the minds of the voters. But, you know, all have been resurrected late in this process, and a lot of folks sitting in that room never saw any of them play. And that makes them all long shots because, as we know, the latest is the greatest. Yeah. What do you think? Right. Can I ask no. you a question? What do you two guys think of Roger Craig? Because I think he's the Hall of Very Good. That's just my opinion. I think you should be in, be in be honest with it, because uh, all pro at fullback and halfback, but I also cover the 49ers, so I'm biased. Yeah, I like his candidacy, um, because he was a great fullback and a great halfback after that. He he, he led the league in rushing one year, caught 100 balls. I, I Yeah, I, he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer, Ron, right. but I, had no, I would have no problem voting him in. Okay. Yeah, and, and Ron, I, I think I said all pro. He was pro ball both, but I, I think he's got the qualifications. And, you know, that 49ers team, God, they're precious few guys from those teams that they are in the Hall of Fame. They must have been doing something right. Must have had some players there. But I'd right, like to see all three of these funny, guys. It's, it's funny you mention that, Clark, because we never hear that about those teams. We hear it about other teams. The Broncos yeah, right. crying the blues forever, you know. Right. Uh, but right. the 49ers, you're right. I mean, they won all those championships, and they don't have very many guys in. Well, it goes quick here. I'd like to see all three make it, as, as I said earlier, but if only because this is the last chance before disappearing to that senior bit. But how about a semifinalist who wasn't a finalist a year ago you'd like to see in there? Um, and I'm going to go with the two guests today, Leroy Butler and Steve Atwater. How about you? Yeah, same way. Uh, the, I'm the, the more defensive players in the room, the better the chance of justice being served in the selection process. You know, for, for far too long, the Hall has been all about offense and any safety that gets in. All rise. Here comes the judge. Well, there's my cue to go oh, through a state-year case for deserving Hall of Fame candidate. Except this is no ordinary state-year case, guys. I have to make the case for the most qualified candidate among the 27 semifinalists up for the Hall's class of 2018. It's an easy one because it's former linebacker Ray Lewis. So I really don't have to do anything here other than recite the facts, which I did on our website this week. That was talkoffamenetwork.com. But I'll mention it again. I'm the guy who was a 13-time Pro Bowler, 10-time All-Pro, two-time Defensive Player of the Year, two-time Super Bowl champion, and an all-decade starter. In short, Ray Lewis checked all the boxes necessary to make it to Canton. But it's not just that Ray Lewis was the best at his position during his era. He was one of the best ever. He led his team in tackles 12 of the 14 years he was there. He's the only player in NFL history to have at least 40 sacks and 30 interceptions. And he's only the second linebacker in history. And second only to Hall of Famer Jack, uh, Jack Ham to have 49 career takeaways. He had 49. Jack Ham is the only guy had more. He had 53. So he's second. But Ray Lewis has something Jack Ham does not. And that's a statue of himself outside the Ravens Stadium. It's one of two. The other one, Ron, one of your favorites, John Unitas, and one of Goose's too. Unitas and Ray Lewis outside the Ravens Stadium. Anyway, I know what you're thinking, and, and it has to do 
with his involvement in that double murder outside of a nightclub in Atlanta, at least. You're not thinking it. Our listeners are. And, and sorry, it's not a factor here. Anything off the field or outside the locker room, as you guys know, is not subject to debate, which means we're back to what Ray Lewis did for the Ravens, which is everything. He put them on the map, period, end of story, put him in the hall now. So, Clark, where does Lewis fit in the pecking order of the all-time great linebackers? Well, to me, the conversation starts with Buckus. I mean, I, I never saw anyone better, but I really didn't see Joe Schmidt in his prime. Uh, I like Willie Lanier. I like Jack Lambert. Always have. Uh, I would think after those three, maybe Joe Schmidt. You start including Ray Lewis. But the guy was reminiscent to me of Buckus because he was physical and intimidating on a physical, intimidating defense. One difference, of course. Ray Lewis won championships. Dick Buckus did not. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. A week ago, we spent time with two of the best pass catchers in NFL history. Now we're going to go over to the other side of the ball and sitting down with two of the best safeties, starting with our next guest, former Green Bay Packers star Leroy Butler. He's been on the show before, and you should know his credentials. He was a four-time Pro Bowler, four-time All-Pro, Super Bowl champion, all-decade choice, and the first, the very first, to make the Lambeau Leap. And he's a member of the Packers Hall of Fame. What you might not know, however, is that he's a Hall of Fame semifinalist for the first time in his career. And, Leroy, we, we couldn't be happier for you. Oh, thank you very much, Rick. I really appreciate it. And I understand the process. I respect the process. But, again, I just want um, the safety to start to try to get a little bit more, you know, recognition. And hopefully that will change soon. Yeah, tell me about it. There are way too few safeties, way in, in, in tight ends for that matter. Yeah. Hall. Um, don't you think you should qualify for the Hall just for inventing the Lambeau Leap? I mean, look at all the players <laughs> celebrating now. I mean, you were the original celebrator. Shouldn't that be alone to get you, get you a, a gold jacket and a bust again? I think so. I mean, if you want to talk about relating to your fans and having a great fan base, you know, no one really wanted to sit in the north and south end zones in those uh, end zone seats until I, you know, started that leap. Now everybody wants to get in those end zones. You get a chance to catch one of your favorite players. I just <laughs> think it shows a lot, of, you know, the connection we have with our fans here in Green Bay. And everybody has a great fan base. But when you can, you know, do something where it connects the player to the fan, I think it's awesome. How often do you hear the term Lambo leap during your process? Oh, my goodness. More than you know, Rick. I think people talk about it because when that is happening, the Packers are winning because you have to score. <laughs> you have to score. And I think Robert Brooks actually made a song about it after that. And then next thing you know, you know, people were, like, really tuned into it. I mean, and that's the good thing about it. When you're doing the leap, you're winning games and you're scoring touchdowns. Everybody's in a good mood. Yeah. Okay, I'm in the Hall of Fame here. Where were you when you first heard you were a semifinalist, and what was your initial reaction? Okay, I'll tell you, I was not in a good mood, Rick. I, the, the fact that it just got shut out by Baltimore, I think like 23 to nothing, I'm riding back, and I got a phone call from a good friend of mine, and he 
trying to let me know. And I was like, yeah, listen, this is not that they would be pulling a joke. <laughs> I actually thought it was like Brett Favre joking with me to get my mood to change. But it wasn't. And when I found out about it, I was really, really, really excited. I really was because I know it's a step process. And you got to be able to um, have people talk about some of the good things you've done. So this is part of the process. So, Rick, I was very, very excited. Were you shocked? I mean, you've been a candidate for uh, 10 years, 10, 11 years. Ooh. Were you shocked when you yeah. found out that finally, finally they called your name? And I know that, you know, kickers and safeties, people forget about them. But if you look in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, I don't think you can go to a, a great team and they say they not have a safety. So I was shocked in a little bit because I know I'm dealing with the smallest market. And I really didn't want people to think it was just Brett Favre and Reggie White in the 90s who put that Packer team, you know, back on the map. Because I was there before Reggie and Brett. I was there through the good and the bad times, not just come when it was good. So I felt good about it. And, again, I was shocked. But the more and more I thought about it, I thought that I really belonged, you know, to in the next process. And it made me feel real good. Uh, we're speaking with Hall of Fame semifinalist Leroy Butler on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And Leroy, from those great Packer teams in the 90s, there were only two starters, as you mentioned, elected the Hall, Brett and Reggie. Mm-hmm. Yet you have Cantonworthy worthy yeah. like yourself and Sterling Sharp, who until this year had never even been a semifinalist. Did you ever find yourself asking, why? Why not us? Well, yeah, I mean, Rick, that's a good question because I heard about the Lombardi years. They say it was too many Lombardi guys were in there. Right. That's why a guy like Jerry Kramer had to wait. And then I'm getting, you know, people saying, well, you know, Ron Wolf, you know, and Brett and Reggie took up all the wins in, in the sale through the Green Bay Packers, and there should be nobody else. That's why I said, wait a minute. I know I'm dealing with the smallest market and things of that nature, but if you look at something I had to really deal with. In Super Bowl 32, you know, Shanahan could have talked about anything, but he said he designed his his you know whole game plan around stopping Leroy Butler. It wasn't Reggie White. It was Leroy Butler. So to me, that was an indictment on how good I thought I was at that particular time. Yeah, that's amazing. And the thing is, 69% of everyone in Canton has a ring. You got a ring. That's one another check off the box. I mean, for, when you're a first-team all-decade, that's almost a rubber stamp of a Boston Canton. And you're a first-team all-decade guy. It makes no sense that, the, that this is the first time you've actually been close to becoming a finalist. And, and as players, that's what we talk about. We talk about how good you were, what kind of team you were on, but did you actually get your team you know, to win a Super Bowl, to even play in a Super Bowl, I think it's fantastic. But when you win one, you're in an elite class. So before a decade, if you're the best at your position, I just think you should be talked about a little bit more. And I think sometimes it rings a bell. It rings true to some of the voters who are in bigger markets. They get a chance to see a guy play. But when you actually look at that list and you see some of your guys you familiar with who he went up against that makes a big difference you know to me as well you know who did you go up against and what era and things of that nature so and i'm gonna tell you something rick i was elated to make the all-decade team because it makes me feel good for 10 years i was one of the best at my position no question i'll give you a chance to toot your own horn here what what separated you as a safety and what separates you from other hall of fame candidates at that position 
You know, that's a very fair question. I think it's a great question. If, if it wasn't for Ronnie Lott, there is no Leroy Butler. It's just not. I watch Ronnie Lott. He's to go of the safety position. It's one thing that separated me. On third down, I covered the best tight end. Uh, you know, on second and long, I covered the slot receiver. I cover people. When people say what safeties had to do, I just want to see the tape of these guys covering people. I mean, because I never really wanted to be the safety to sit in the center field, get a lot of picks. And No, I wanted to go out to the quarterback. I wanted to get sacks and things of that nature. Now you get a chance to develop people like Troy Palomala, you know, and, and Dawkins and these guys who've done more than some of the guys with just a lot of interceptions, but they affected the game. I mean, did you have to go into the lab and be the offensive coordinator? Did you have to draw a place to avoid this guy? Almost like the Deion Sanders of safeties. You know, did we have to avoid this guy? And that's the way I prided myself, and that's what I thought I brought to the game. You look at the, the fields of, of defensive backs uh, on the semifinal list, there's seven of them, and it's loaded. You got Brian Dawkins, yeah. John Lynch, Steve Atwater, who's coming up in a second hour, and you at safety. Realistically, and tell us the truth, how difficult do you think uh, it, that makes it for you to get through to the next round? I think it's very difficult. I think it's difficult because I think, you know, those guys, you know, Dawkins was a finalist, and maybe somebody didn't vote him in because they probably said, well, I need to compare his past to maybe Leroy Butler's. Wait a minute. If we didn't put him in because of whatever reason, maybe we should bring, you know, Leroy Butler into the conversation and just find out put these guys on equal playing field and see what happens or just do the right thing and put two of us in every three or four years until we all get in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make it a catch if you're like wide receivers. So who Absolutely. The best, Absolutely. Who, who's, who's the best safety ever come, ever come out of Jacksonville high schools? You or Brian Dawkins? Well, since I'm old, I'm going to have to say myself. <laughs> you know, and, and, and then we can wrestle all about it, which he'll probably win. I just really enjoy watching. I used to call him the shield, you know, because he had that shield that no one can see his face, but the guy affected games. And he played in a division, too. He played in a division. You play in Dallas twice a year, and you play some of these tough, you know, the, you know, Washington twice a year, but teams ran the ball and threw the football, and he put up very good numbers. You know, but in my era, in the 90s, it was three teams that dominated Dallas, San Francisco, and the Green Bay Packers. And I had to go up against a Hall of Fame quarterback, seemed like, all the time. But for the most part, to me, was when I first got to, to Packers, they were terrible teams, a losing culture. And while I was there, the culture changed to a winning culture. And to win a Super Bowl after 30 years, to me, it really puts me in a good light. You know, when you got to Green Bay, you were an All-America cornerback at Florida State. Were you yes. reluctant to move when they said, we want to slide you inside? <laughs> no, no. You know, I could Ray Rose. Ray Rose, if it wasn't for Ray Rose, I wouldn't even be on this phone call. Ray Rose called me up, and he gave me the old buy-in speech. We're going to move you to make the team better. We want to draft Terrell Buckley, and I think we had a top-five pick, and I'm going to move you over to safety. I say, we used to call him Ray Bob. I say, Ray Bob, listen, I can't move to safety. I'm 195 pounds. He said, good, good, good. Don't gain any more weight because on third down, I want to keep my regular defense in. If you can cover a third wide receiver, then we won't be so predictable. And after I hung up the phone, he called me right back. He said, if you believe me, you will one day be all pro safety. And he hung the phone up, almost like dropping the mic. And he was right. 
So I owe so much to him because he had to sell me on that. Because some guys don't want to move. No, we'll just compete at at cornerback. But I, he he said, listen, you can play safety under two hundred pounds because you you don't need to do some of the things you think you need to do. I got linebackers for that. I need somebody to cover the third receiver, cover the best tight end, and cover the backside of the backfield. If you can do, my defense can get to another level, and so will you. Huh. Yeah, you know, the, when we talk about safeties, and this has been the problem over the years, when Paul Krauss was up, he was the all-time leading interceptor with 81. And they said, well, mm-hmm. you could never find him on tape. He didn't make any tackles. Now Steve Atwater comes up, who was a beast in the box, a great run to player. And they says, well, he only had 24 interceptions. So where was he in the passing game? They're always, it's like they're looking for a nick. They're looking for something negative to say about safeties as opposed to say something positive. Yeah, you're right about that. Because, I mean, to me, I, again, I wanted to be like Ronnie Lott, be a, a great hitter, but I resulted in a great tackler. It's a difference. Right, right. So if you're affecting the game, I mean, I think Steve Atwater should be talking about it just from the hit he put on Quentin Okoye. Nobody can take that guy down with one hit. I just, not to mention he's one of my best friends. I just think that it's a lot of positive go to when you see a guy that's back there when receivers don't want to go in that area. You know, when receivers don't want to go in that area, to me, that's a guy that should be talking about with all the friends. You, th- you think this is a natural progression? You look at Ronnie Lott, uh, Rod Woodson, Charles Woodson, yourself, guys that started a corner and moved inside. Is that becoming a natural progression now for, for defensive backs, great corners that get to play inside? I think so because, you know, you as a defensive coordinator, you know, when teams have got all this spread, they run this ride in the side, they always with three wide receivers and two backs, you need a guy to cover. Right. You don't always need to bring in a slot corner if, you're, if your safety has coverage skills. So it's a natural progression, as you talked about, if a guy can cover and understand the leverage of a cornerback and still play with the smartness of a safety, that's the best of both worlds. I mean, you can do so many things if you can do everything out of your base defense. You can send four or five guys after the quarterback and still cover, you know, the fast or big tight ends. Or you know, I mean, I played against a guy, Ben Coach, six five, two hundred forty pounds. I mean, like, again, I was five eleven modestly, five eleven, you know, one hundred ninety five pounds. But it wasn't about size; it was about being smart enough to be able to cover a guy because of how big he was. Uh, how would you have covered Gronk? Well, hoping that for some reason he gets hurt when he played with me. That's what I was been praying. Like, I don't want to play this guy. <laughs> but the one thing, the one thing, real quick about Gronk, how I would have played him, I never would have let it been a lot of daylight between us right. because I can't win a pushing match. So I have to win that battle by being athletically sound. <laughs> hey, Leroy, thanks for your time. And here's hoping we see you in Minneapolis. I mean, you certainly deserve to be in that room, and you deserve to have your career discussed. Thanks for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to meeting That was Hall of Fame candidate Leroy Butler. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. And now for a word from the NFL's biggest game changers. That's the two-minute warning. Yep, that would be officials calling another work stoppage here. Only this time, it's so we can go to the two-minute drill. Ronnie, you got us this week. Take us into halftime. Okay, gentlemen, Jimmy G, Kenny G, or the Bee Gees? At Christmas time, Kenny G. 
Gee, I don't know, Ron. I guess I just got to get a message to you. Jimmy Garoppolo is undefeated as an NFL starter with a career QB rating of 101.8. Did the Patriots trade the wrong quarterback? The 49ers certainly hope so. No, the guy they kept has five rings and a QB rating of 104.2 this year. Will the Eagles Super Bowl hope survive Nick Foles? I'm sure they'd rather have Nick Saban this time of year than Nick Foles. <laughs> no, Earl Morrill, he's not. Will the beloved Brownies go 0-16? The Detroit vote is in, and it's resounding yes. I'm with you, Goose. Let's see. They finished the season in Pittsburgh, Rock, where they haven't won since 2003, and a word, yes. Is home field advantage really important in the playoffs? The last time a top seed didn't win was 2012, so I say yes. I'm with you, Goose. It is if you're in the AFC. The past four that had it went to the Super Bowl, and five of the last six did too. Is a bye important in the playoffs? The last time a top seed didn't win was 2012, so I say (laughs) yes. It is if you're trying to get Antonio Brown back. Is it time to say bye-bye to the present catch rule? Whatever it is. It's time to say bye-bye to the whole concept of instant replay. Yeah, no, it's not time. That time was years ago, Ron. Have either of you ever not survived the ground? The ground and gravity are both unbeaten. Yeah, once. Was grounded for rooting for the Yankees. Then they won the World Series. Will an NFL receiver ever survive the ground again? Yes, the wide receiving core at West Point. Only if he plays for New England. Is this weekend Eli Manning's last as a giant? For Eli's sake, I hope so. Yes. Eli's going. In this week, is this weekend Marvin Lewis's last as coach of the Bengals? Yes, then it's on to Phoenix for a lifetime of R and R. Yes, even Mike Brown got tired of 0-7 in the playoffs. That's the end of the That's the end of the first half, but stay tuned. We have also Jay Paris and Hall of Fame semifinalist Steve Atwater coming up in the second hour. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. 